I think we do have a skills gap in, in it's generational that this industry hasn't figured out how to get young people in and create a career path for them. Like I made a conscious decision to go like make a career out of this stupidly, stubbornly maybe, but it was, Hey, I see a path here. I remember early on thinking I've got friends that went in different directions and they've got benefits. They've got all these things that I don't think are existent. But I stuck with it and eventually I've been better for it and I've gotten all those things that I didn't think I could in this industry. Less stress, more time, more money. Welcome to the Cash Flow Contractor interview. Martin, do you... Uh... I know that you are pheasant hunter. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Where are you going with this, Cleo? <laughs> no, what, quail, what other quail and pheasants? Quail and pheasants. Any duck yeah. hunting? Uh, in the past. In the past. Yeah. Are you any any plans this fall for some some hunting going yeah. on? Just, Where are you going? Just pay up to Nebraska and also into Kansas. You know what I just saw in Nebraska. Yes. You may know. What did I see? I do. You saw 92,003 people show up for a volley game in the stadium. Volley game? They, they, Come on. Volleyball ball game. Oh, I didn't say ball? Volleyball No, you didn't game. say ball. Yeah, they uh, set a world record. Uh, for I just attendance. can't imagine how you can watch a volleyball match from a stadium like the nosebleeds. You're going to be like that. You can't even see the ball, I'm sure. Well, do you think that volleyball had anything to do with it? No. I don't. Actually, actually, it did uh, because they're they're big time. They're like OU is in softball. They are, you know, five times national champions and all this. Yeah. So people really support it, but it was a huge party. It was a huge party. It, they pulled it off. I mean, more more people in a stadium than like watching the World Cup final of the women's. You know, like yeah. just crazy to think about, but interesting. You know, I asked about uh, hunting. I have no idea if this is even close. But our uh, our guest has a business called Duckworks, and I I got to know Jacob. Where does Duckworks come from? Where does the name come from? Uh, you know, I that's one of the first things people always ask. Or really, it's usually second or third, but they ask it. Um, and initially, so before I started Duckworks, I I used to write a blog just on my personal website in between you know other jobs. And one of my posts I wrote was called "Be a Duck." And it was a cheesy acronym that I had put okay. together, a short blog post, be diligent, be urgent, be consistent, and be knowledgeable. Ooh. Um, but at the time, I, I was that. also managing a team of drafters and engineers, and they happened upon to dis you know, discover, hey, Jacob has a blog, and he has this really hilarious post that's really cheesy. And so they circulated internally, and they would use it to make fun of me. Um, oh. They were like, oh my gosh, Jacob has a blog. He's a blogger. But what I took from that when I went to start a company last year was, hey, I need a name. I want something original that sticks. And over many years of, since I wrote that blog post, that was always something that they would remember about my blog. And I thought, hey, it sticks. And um, so originally it was just going to be Duck Millwork Consulting. And I reached out to a good, one of my best friends who's in marketing. And he said, no, Duck Millwork is terrible. You need another syllable there. He said, make it mm -hmm. Duckworks. That'll be perfect. And I said, okay, I got to fill out this paperwork to register my name with the state. And and that was really how it started. Nice. Um, it, it's worked out well. I didn't plan it this way, but, you know, we have a, a large team and ducks just happen to be something that there's tons of, you know, marketing tchotchkes, things around. And so- right. they, like the rubber ducky in the background there? Yeah, yeah. We have, <laughs> I have tons of these now all over my house. My wife and kids collect them and our, our team actually love them. So it's nice. It's a really easy uh, marketing thing to get around. And I'm just, like I'm thinking about all the things you could do with that. Like you could, you know, have different levels of duck gifts for how many years you've been in the company as for the employees. Yeah. Um, you could we, have like different equipment. If you have several pieces of the same type of equipment, you could have different types of ducks for each of the varieties of equipment. We do a, a duck of the quarter where we kind of award, you know, nice. our duck of the quarter internally. And we do have a little, one of our drafters does 3D printing and he made a, a rubber duck trophy with sunglasses on it that we nice. give out. 
Um, but yeah, the only you know, downside is that people think we do HVAC too often. So, oh man, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask that at one point because duct works. I mean, that's what the duct work. Yes. Right. Um, well, that's, that's like people always say duct tape. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's D-U-C-T. Yep. But people have ducts on their, you know, a mallard on the wrapper. And <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you could literally get like tape that has ducts on it. You could even have like a, um. Your team meetings in the morning could be quack time. <laughs> there's there's a lot. I love it. It does. Chad TPT comes up with lots of good little marketing <laughs> things. I bet. I bet. So You can also uh, start every meeting by swinging a two before in a circle and tell everybody to duck. <laughs> that, that's, my, that's my contribution now. There you go. Khalil. So, Jacob, welcome to the podcast, Cashflow Contractor. Um, you have your own podcast. That's why we got this great setup and great audio for you. Thank you for making that easier for our team to edit. Um, tell us about your podcast and why you even have a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Um, so, yes, I have a podcast. We launched um, earlier this year called Verify and Field, the Millwork Podcast. Um, and I've, I've, you know, being a millennial, I've listened to podcasts for many years. And, uh, but in, the industry I've worked in the millwork industry now, you know, since I graduated college, so about um, twelve or so years now, and it's um, there's not really a lot of content for us. You know, I remember when yeah. I first came out of architecture school, and my go-to was, "Hey, the Google information about my first job, how to use the software, like what types of best practices there are, and things like that," and it just felt like it was non-existent. Yeah. Um, so really, all through my career, you know, I've I've hoped that somebody would create more content. So that was an initial drive. And then starting Duckworks, you know, I had an opportunity to um, now being um, a, a vendor, like we provide services for the industry. So I spent most of my career working for a handful of different companies. Um, but now being on the supplier side and, you know, being partners for companies, I speak to so many different business owners, different people in the industry, realize really how large this industry is even though it's, you know, seems non-existent unless you're in it. Um, but once you're in it, it's huge. And so I felt like, hey, there's so many important voices and people that um, have important things to share. And I really just wanted to start to build that community. And uh, so I decided to launch the podcast and really take that opportunity to start sharing that information. So the, the real hope is just to create somewhat of an anchor and I, I i know other people will hopefully follow and, and create better content than i have um but that was really the initial impetus for it nice and then you um verify and field why that name is it to to find the people that are in the field doing the work and to verify best processes best information from them it's um it's actually a ter uh, an industry you know so oh, okay there my we go. background is drafting and engineering within this field um, i come from an okay. architecture background and spent really my whole career in engineering and in millwork and this is really just in construction in general but specifically in millwork on our shop drawings we're constantly putting dimensions with verify and field and uh, that means that hey okay based on the architectural drawings this wall should be 12 feet but until the arc the gc actually builds it we don't know the exact length for our, where our millwork is going to go. And so verifying field is just like a very common term or abbreviated VIF. Um, anybody in millwork knows that. Uh, and so it just seemed like a, a unique term that would catch people's eye. If, if they know it, they know it. Yeah. And it's really just a plan words for that. I like that. Um, I need to probably use that inside of the work that I do more often. <laughs> It's a little bit like saying, not my fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. Hey, it's on you now, buddy. Yep. Yeah. But that's so, how the yeah, Go ahead, Martin. What are you saying? No. Uh, and, and it's like as built. So I don't think that necessarily uh, applies to mill work, but for a lot of systems and mm -hmm. stuff, you have the design, you have verify, do in field, whether you verify it or not. And then the as built. And a lot of times those are three different things. Yes, and, and that is, to, well, at least in commercial millwork, that is usually a requirement that millworkers have to provide as built after the fact to complete out of contract. Oh, okay. But really, at that point, it's just contract documents. Nobody looks at that. Nobody verifies the as built? No, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that is 
that is a whole other topic that there are people working on. There's another one out there that's been used in all kinds of shops called cut to fit and paint to match. <laughs> yeah, man. We'll keep going here. So obviously I got the verifying field wrong. Um, and I think probably our listeners may have not caught that either because I don't know that there's a ton of our listeners necessarily in the millwork space. So kind of update us on the millwork space uh, just briefly. And then let's talk about the customers that are inside there. You're in Atlanta. Is that right, Jacob? Yeah, I'm located in the Atlanta area in Georgia. Okay. So you're in Atlanta every couple of years. IWF, the International Woodworking Fair is, is in Atlanta yep. and it is massive. I've been, it's like, if you thought millwork wasn't a big industry, like you said, go there and then you're going to be like, oh, wow. And they're doing some of the coolest things. And it's so diverse as well. Like the Amish population is huge and Mennonite population is huge in the industry. Yep. Uh, but then there's also like all over the world, people coming that are, you know, buying massive robots and machines. So it's a huge industry. Tell us a little bit about it. And then tell us about the, the people that you're serving at Duckworks. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So the architectural millwork, architectural woodwork industry um, is massive here. And in, in generally, I'm going to be speaking about the U.S. market, which I assume is most of your audience. But for anybody that might be listening, we're talking about, yeah. about U.S. and North America. Um, and it really, if you go into any building, residential or commercial, if you see one cabinetry, that's what people mostly think of, caseware, cabinets, furniture. Uh, but like, if you think if you go to any lobby of a hotel or a business or a commercial building um, or even your restaurants, like somebody, these the, our customers, millwork manufacturers make all of the finished materials and not just wood. Um, so you think the contractor... It, uh, we'll hire people and they'll do the framing, the drywall, the paint, all that stuff. But anything from the running trim, so your casings around your windows to wall panels, uh, to uh, your doors and windows, to uh, what's more common, the casework, reception desks, custom fixtures and things like that. So, um, and there's niches within the industry that focus on these different things. So there's people that focus on hospitality and hotels and literally all the furniture that you see in hotel rooms to the common areas where you've got the break rooms and the lobby and that type of stuff. Um, there's people who focus on hospitals. So you think all of the hospital um, rooms themselves, the patient rooms, the uh, front intake areas, like all of that stuff is made by millwork manufacturers. And so generally the way this works in the commercial, there's kind of two subsets largely residential and commercial um and so if you think about anything that can either be processed out of hardwood lumber or sheet goods on a cnc um whether it be wood or plastic or laminate or phenolic or resin combined with metals and anything that makes pre-made and manufactured assemblies that get installed in the building that's millwork so historically, it was largely woodwork, and it's still categorized under that. But today, it's really anything that architects design that is after drywall, after the general building um, that needs to be installed that is unique to that building. That's what mill workers do. And on the residential side, you know, obviously, you have cabinets and kitchens and things like that. But there is a whole high-end market for the similar types of fi fixtures to put into large um, premium houses and stuff as well. And so this industry is is essentially a, a subset of the construction industry. And a lot of the times, people who may be listening to your podcast, if they are contractors, general contractors, um, they're often having to subcontract to mill workers. Um, so talking about our clients and the people that we serve, they are uh, millwork manufacturers who generally have to first provide what's called shop drawings or submittal drawings to the client and or architect uh, before manufacturing. So usually just talking about on the commercial side, you know, if a large building is being built or upfitted, a prime contractor will come in and get the contract for the entire project, right? And then they will subcontract all the trades. And one of those trades is in, if, 
if your clients may be familiar with the um, the divisions, if you think of division six, division ten, division twelve, um, are the divisions that would go to millwork manufacturers. So that's your woodwork finishes, your casework, manufactured casework, um, doors and windows and stuff like that. And so they will bid that out and a manufacturer will get that contract under the general contractor and architect does their design drawings just like everything. So your plumber, your HVAC will have to do their shop drawings. And just the same, the mill worker will take what the architect has done with design intent. Sometimes it's very vague. Hey, we want cabinets along this well wall. Sometimes it's very, very detailed. Hey, we've got this 3D model of this crazy desk we want you to build. And the millwork manufacturers have to take that and say, okay, now we need to put into shop drawings how we intend to execute the design intent. And a lot of times that's where like the difficulty starts for these millwork contractors because they're taking something the architect has designed that on face value is impossible. Hey, we want to cantilever this huge angled desk. And so now they have to figure out, how do I make this a reality? Do I insert steel here and, and coordinate with all the other trades around it? But what we do is we facilitate that step, which is, hey, we have to pr produce shop drawings of what the manufacturer is actually going to make with details that show not just the outside, but, hey, section details, what are the materials and hardware? How is it um, going to be fabricated? If it's large pieces, it needs to have the ability to be broken apart from the shop and put back together in the field and types of stuff like that. So um, I know I can go into a lot more detail, but uh, what does that all kind of make sense, at least at a, at a high level? It does. I want to jump back and ask you about the divisions. What is that okay. like standard uh, contract language that's categorized into? To, I, I hadn't heard the, the term used okay. that way. Khalil, are you familiar with? with what I'm talking about there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you had mentioned earlier a little bit. Um, it's the CSI. Jeff Finian. Yeah, but go ahead. Um, so there's, I think it's called the Construction uh, Services Institute. There's CSI is the divisions. I'll have to look up exactly what it stands for. But this is in the construction industry in, in general. There is all these standard divisions that contracts are divided up into by types of work. So okay. you have everything from you know, land clearing and, and foundations all the way through the end of the building are divided up into divisions. And then the way the contracts are written, the way architects will spec the job out is, you know, they'll actually write, and a lot of times it's boilerplate, but they'll say, hey, division six, sometimes they'll say, you know, must go to one of these, the short list of manufacturers, for example. Um, okay. And they'll say, the architect can even specify, hey, here's the six manufacturers that we say are up to snuff to be able to do this work. And then the GC will have to go bid those guys. But it outlines for that division the way the work should be executed and stuff like that. I've actually seen that book now that you say it. I've had architect clients mm -hmm. and they rely on it for mm -hmm. so much, get all that language out of there. Yep. Okay, thanks. No, excellent. So obviously... You know, you're you're serving clients in this industry, um, and I think we can understand a little bit more about how you got into this just from your background. Um, but graduated with a degree in architecture, and then you start working immediately uh, as an engineer. What does your career path look like? Uh, something that we talk about a lot is the evolution of a business owner, and I think we're going to kind of see that. So, just kind of give us get us up to speed about how you got into the yeah, industry. Yeah, absolutely. So. I, yeah, I went to architecture school, um, you know, wanted to be an architect largely because uh, people said, hey, you're good at drawing, you're good at math, you're, you're good at figuring things out. This is a path for you. And that's kind of how I entered into it. I worked construction in high school and a little bit in college, and I really honestly just wanted to build things. I like to figure things out. I love seeing stick built, stick built homes go up. Um, and I worked as a framer for a little while in construction. Um, but by the time I got to the end of architecture school, I was a little bit jaded of what architecture really was versus what I thought it was. And I really wanted to be more hands-on. I spent some time as an intern architect and realized, hey, I'm drawing these houses, but I'm never seeing them being built. And a lot of the stuff we were working on, I was in a small architecture firm, was, you know, clients hire you because the, the building department tells them they have to, to meet code. They don't really want your help as an architect. Um, and so... 
I graduated college. I got my first job and I saw a listing actually for um, drafting for a door and window millwork company. So I said, I know AutoCAD. I've done shop drawings. I can do this. And I know a little bit about woodworking. And they hired me. It was a very small upstart millwork company that made actually hurricane rated doors and windows. And so this is another very niche part of this industry. But um, for homes on the coast, you actually have to have hurricane rated doors and windows called design pressure and impact rated. And they actually, this is where they take the doors and test them and shoot two by fours at them to make sure that if a hurricane comes through, they're going to survive. So I started out doing their shop drawings. And when I wasn't doing that, I was learning how to, to work on the shop and fill you know that void. And uh, I learned how to run a joiner and planer, mill lumber from rough lumber. Um, and over two years there, you know, eventually was supervising that shop, making all the radius, uh, radius and elliptical doors and stuff like that. I realized, though, hey, I really like this is great. I've learned a lot, but I really want to get back towards like the design and leadership. I don't want to, you know, lose fingers, frankly. Um, and so I uh, just took a shop at my I mean, I took a job at a millwork shop that does more casework and millwork like uh, what I spent the rest of my years at, at Trump companies doing as an engineer. And that was actually where I was first introduced to a software called Microvellum, which um, overlays in AutoCAD and kind of develops a parametric library of products. But I got exposed to working with directly with the architects there, um, engineering jobs, going and meeting with the client and solutioning and figuring out, which is really what I learned to do in architecture school was how do you solve design problems? And really it was how do you Understand from your client, not what they're thinking their solution is, but what is their problem statement. And a lot of times they present to you a design problem with their proposed solution that they, they've seen somewhere. Hey, I really want this type of house or I want this type of thing. But what they're actually you're trying to get at is, OK, what are you trying to solve? And I can actually probably help you with a better solution than you're aware of possibly. And so that was really what I started to explore was in millwork. Um, we're creating solutions and an architect or a client or a GC is saying, hey, we need a reception desk that looks like this. And we're trying to figure out how to meet this design intent of the client. But we're not the experts on how to construct this type of thing. You guys are. And so I took that. I was like, great, I love this. I'm going to take that rough draft and figure out how can we construct this creatively and still meet the design intent. Um, Very quickly, though, you know, I... I started managing the department and helping develop other companies' departments and using that software microvellum to streamline processes and use it to build libraries so that more entry-level people could be drafters and engineers without having to have the expert knowledge that, you know, experienced millworker, millworker has about how we constructed things. And um, over time, I eventually got brought on board to a an upstart called USA Millwork that was um, acquiring other manufacturing companies with the goal of being a nationwide millwork company with multiple manufacturing locations. And so that was actually my last role before starting Duckworks was my job as VP of engineering there was to integrate five millwork manufacturing locations from an engineering and design standpoint. And I really there started to learn a whole lot about the challenges our industry faces with um, serving different markets. So a lot of companies in this industry really operate in a single city or a single state in a single market. But for example, California, you have to account for um, what do you call it? earthquakes and seismic and things like that that we don't have to deal with over here on the Southeast. Um, and so there's different code requirements that you have to think about. There's different... Uh, just trends that happen. And so having to account for those from a nationwide standpoint, as well as being able to talk to different machines, different people, and just the overall change management uh, that goes into integrating teams from different regions, from different shops with different legacy processes and systems really opened my eyes to a new set of problems. Um, and so mm -hmm. that's really the start of what... Duckworks was initially was, okay, how can I take what I've learned 
over my career so far to help other people in similar positions to um, overcome these engineering and drafting bottlenecks that they have. So find, you find the pain point for these, uh, these people in the millwork industry and you create Duckworks. But obviously, you know, you shared a little bit about your background. What was it like outside of the industry aspect of this, but more to the entrepreneur level? What was it like jumping out on your own and creating uh, Duckworks? Um, yeah, so I think I always had a desire and a hope that eventually in my career, I would, you know, start a business or, you know, go out on my own some way. Um, mm -hmm. you know, cause once you get into some level of leadership within organizations or within companies, you know, you're always, if, unless you are the owner or CEO or president or kind of like that, that top level, your middle management, really, you're starting to have to grow and learn and figure out how to manage other people, but also how to manage up and how do I yeah. meet the needs of the business, understand the needs of the business? How do I, uh, support my manager, my leaders, you know, goals and needs and what they're trying to do, make them look good, make them successful. Um, but at the same time, you're, you're struggling with, Hey, well, what if this was the goal instead of, or I have this idea, but it, you know, I'm not the one calling the shots. Um, so, but I always thought like, oh, that's way later in my career, you know, and this industry is, a like, I'm still very young for this industry. I'm 35 and, uh, in mill work, like that is, I'm a baby. Um, so I never yeah. like thought, Hey, at 34, I'm going to be starting a business or whatever, 33. But, um, <clears throat> I fortunately over my career have had a lot of people that have invested in me and saw potential and, you know, what ultimately um, caught, you know, was the start, I guess, was USA Millwork um, shut down, more or less. The, they basically sold off the business units to new owners. So those companies still exist. Just my role as an integrator at, at the USA level went away. And so I had a decision to go get another job or do I take this opportunity? And my wife, uh, you know, my, my former boss, many people that I work with were like, hey, you have a lot to offer the industry. Um, this is your opportunity. And so that was motivation. At the same time, at USA Millwork, we had started building this team in Bolivia. And so... Uh, um, I had always, as I moved from company to company, most companies in this industry will outsource some amount of their drafting needs. And usually it's for two main reasons, schedule and cost. And so one mm. cost, hey, if I can get the shop drawings done cheaply and not clog up any of my internal resources at the same time, a lot of times an owner or sales guy will sell a job and they'll say, hey, yep, we can get you shop drawings in two weeks. They will outsource that to one of the many companies out there that do that. Most of them are overseas and say, hey, we'll just get CAD drawings done real fast. I know it's a fixed cost because I got a price up front and they can turn them around yeah. in a week or two weeks, right? So cost and schedule. But you're sacrificing quality um, right up front generally. And a lot of times the way millware companies go about that also is a big reason, not just because those companies are bad at what they do, because it's usually the millwork companies are basically bypassing all their internal processes just to get a document to put in front of the client. And so when I was at USA Millwork, I said, hey, we have a need to solve both those problems, cost and schedule, but I don't want to sacrifice quality to do it. So can we create our own team to solve this problem? And so mm -hmm. uh, that was really how we started staffing in Bolivia. Is our CEO at the time had a really good business school friend was is back in Bolivia now and said, hey, we can hire architects and very educated, skilled people that you guys can train in millwork. And so in the beginning of 2021 was when we hired our first person. And by the end of 2022, we had, um, at the end of 2021, we had about 17 or 18 people that were just doing wow. shop drawings for us. And I worked with my team to train them in our processes. So Fast forward to USA Millwork, um, selling off the business units, me deciding what to do next. I said, well, we've already invested and trained in these people in these skill set, and they don't have 
a client anymore. I don't have a job anymore. I know I can go sell to other companies the same thing we were doing at USA Millwork. Um, that was mm -hmm. really that. And then parallel to that, I said, hey, I would like to try and consult and help other millwork companies do what I was doing as an engineering manager and engineering leader in one company at a time. I think I could help many companies with what I've learned. And so I kind of started those things in parallel and it just, you know, naturally was the companies that were helping do shop drawings overlap very heavily with the companies that I'm helping consulting. And that was really the initial formation of DeckWorks is like, hey, this is one company wow. that we can merge these two things to really help millwork companies um, eliminate their design and drafting bottlenecks. Yeah. So do you think, obviously you were kind of forced into, I mean, maybe forced isn't necessarily the right word, but things, a, a series of events happened to basically push you into DuckWorks. Yep. And do you think that would have happened without that happening? And how soon, if so, do you think it would have happened? Were you ready to kind of go out on your own at that point? Or do you think it would have been a little bit later? Um, I definitely, I, I am and was very fortunate to have opportunities and have people in my corner that were coaching me and motivating me. Like I said, my former boss and, and CEO and also, you know, who I consider a mentor. Um, and then I also have business partners now in, in this, you know, so um, uh, people, you know, don't see them, but I'm very fortunate. One of them is a Harvard Business School grad. And so from an accounting and a finance and a business strategy standpoint, I have a lot of people that are very um, much smarter than me, much more experienced. So I would not say I was ready. Yeah. I definitely wasn't ready, but I felt that, hey, if I have these people in my corner, these people are as resources, um, I'd be dumb not to leverage that. But there was a very fun uh, turning point conversation I had because I honestly, I accepted a job right away and oh. thought in my head, I was thinking just on my own resources, hey, you know, there's only so far I can go as an engineering manager in the millwork industry. And if you search engineering manager on any job board, you're not going to find anything really related to millwork. You're going to find software engineering manager. You're going to find a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. So in my head, I was like, okay, how do I pivot if I need to join another industry one day? Like I still have a lot of career ahead of me. And so I accepted a job as a COO of a small millwork company, um, which was a great company, would have been a great opportunity. It was close to home, but it was, that was me operating out of like, hey, this is a safe decision. I'm, you know, take care of my family. Mm -hmm. um, but I had a conversation with my one of my former bosses, and he said, "Look, you already have an insurance policy. You can go get a job as an engineering manager and pay your bills and support your family at any company in the U.S. You might have to pick up and move, but you know that you're not going to be unemployed. But you have an opportunity now to bet on yourself." And he said, don't go create, don't go buy a second insurance policy, which what that meant was I was trying to say, gain experience and say, okay, this engineering thing doesn't work out. I now, if things don't work out in this job as COO, I could go be a COO in some other industry. Um, hmm. And, but he was like, Hey, don't be an idiot. Like you're smarter than you think you have more to offer than you think. Worst case scenario, you'll go get another job if this doesn't work out, but you have people an opportunity right in front of you and people supporting you and doing this. So it definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it on my own accord. I don't think at that time, I'm very grateful that I did now. Um, but yeah, I think that it was having the right people around me that were uh, coaching me and, and supporting it. Man. So interesting. And you know, there's always something in a story that can be glanced over in terms of how you get started and the people that help you go along and give you the courage to do it. So thanks for yeah. sharing that. Um, so let's go back to Bolivia because obviously you've been able to recruit and you know retain a pretty large team, it sounds like, over in Bolivia. I'm not sure if everyone stayed on or not, but um, what's it like managing global talent from Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah, so um, I have a great team and we were very fortunate that we ultimately started this team, like I said, with my previous company, right? Right. Um, so I think a lot of people will look and say, man, you've built a team of 50 in a year and a half, and it's really more like three years. Um, but it has its own challenges. But what I learned at, at USA Millwork was I was VP of engineering for 
five facilities. And across those five facilities, we actually had a staff of 85 that I was responsible for. And by time COVID came, we had gone fully remote. And so I had 85 people. And by the end, they were spread across 22 states. So mm-hmm. from that regard, it wasn't, it's not much different than what I'm doing now. If anything, I've got, I've got less people. Um, remote is remote. The important yeah. thing is that, you know, we, from the start, have uh, Bolivia is Eastern time zone. So, you know, we're not dealing with somewhere over, you know, in Asia or somewhere that we're on like a 12 hour time difference. And everybody yeah. is English fluent. We, we very much um, were adamant about that from the start to be able to have them truly integrate. So with those yeah. two factors in place, it's really not so much of being international as being remote. Um, and then we do have an office and we have leadership in place down there. Um, I go down three or four times a year, which is huge because it still is a big need to meet in person and develop those relationships. Yeah. And um, and we've actually brought people to the U.S. to visit and work with clients and stuff. So, uh, But I've really leveraged what I learned just managing a remote workforce in the U.S. and a lot of those things, which is... Um, one is to understand that like there is a limit to how many individual direct reports a single person can effectively manage. So there's no way I could be directly managing all 50 of our people, right? I have a, a leadership team below me and, and, and it trickles down from there, right? Um, and understanding like what are my strengths? What are the things that I really offer that are the most value that I can do and, and delegate everything else? Um, and that's a daily struggle because as you're, you're growing a business, you don't really know what the business needs or what you need to hire for, what tasks you need to do. So I, I've always been, and this is kind of my engineering background of like, Hey, I do something until I figure out a process. And then I, I find somebody to train, to repeat that process that I can delegate to. Um, so there's been many phases of that in the starting of Duckworks. And early on, I was talking to every client. I was managing every project. I was running the schedule and in Excel and in planner systems, you know. And so as things evolved and we grew, it was, okay, um, I can't be the one scheduling everything and I need a better solution than Excel. And so we um, invest in Smartsheet, which I had experience with, and we created a real system and I offloaded that to a manager and said, hey, you're responsible for the schedule now and here's what that means. Um, And then having weekly meetings on that. uh, And then it was, okay, I can't be the one doing all estimating sales. And it was, again, how do I create a process and then teach somebody else that now that is their job? And so that is, in my mind, that is like, that's entrepreneurship. That is business. You know, that is just the daily thing that we do, right? Is okay, what am I doing that I could not be doing that's taking up time from something more value add that I could be doing? So lately it's, yeah. okay, I need to be spending more time in front of our clients and in front of our existing clients, making sure that we're adding the right value for them, which means I'm traveling, which means I can't be doing something else that I'm doing. So evaluating that constantly is really you know, what the last year and a half has been. I have two questions I've written down. Um, in light of the fact that it offers your customers a flexible capacity, which I think you really call scheduled, uh, beneficial cost. I've heard some numbers and it's beneficial mm-hmm. and, and quality. Mm-hmm. What is the reason? What pushback do you get? You know, it sounds like a no brainer. There is no such thing, but anyway, it sounds like a no brainer. Why do people say nope? Um, yeah. So a couple reasons. But yes, the primary value adds that we offer obviously are flexibility and schedule and, and cost. But really what we try to add a, that, that nobody else in the market has is that we really try to help our clients actually improve their processes from a quality standpoint. Um, and so generally, if we're not successful either, if a client doesn't want to try us, a lot of the times it's because they're worried about so there is a dynamic in general in this industry where engineers really want to 
do all their own project from start to finish. They don't like to work behind somebody else. They don't like to work in front of somebody else. And a lot of that is because of, I mean, if you imagine you're working, generally they're working in CAD files, CAM files. And so if you're working behind somebody and they don't work the way you do, neither of you guys are following any kind of higher level processes that your business has agreed upon, then a lot of times you're just redoing what they've done because they didn't do it the way you would have done it. Um, I mean, it's almost like if if you're a framer or and you're picking up today with a wall half built by a different framer the day before and they do things differently. Um, that's what it's often like in CAD. And unfortunately, most companies don't have an engineering leader that both understands the technical the implications of that and the management and change management to in or authority to say, hey, this is the way that all of us at this company are going to do these things. And so what we struggle with with clients is if they don't have process in place in their engineering departments or a decision maker who understands whether they do or not, it's very difficult for us to then come in and give them a result that is usable that they're happy with. And usually it's an owner or somebody who's not in engineering making decision from a cost standpoint or schedule to standpoint to hire us. And then three months down the road, their internal engineers are then looking at what we've done and having to engineer it to production and saying, this is terrible. We hate this. This is awful. We're having to work behind them and we had no say in how they did what we're doing. Um, so I don't know if that totally answers your question, but I'll, no, usually okay. it's that internal pushback from our internal customers that aren't the decision makers. Yeah. Well, it you kind of mentioned mm. something that leads to my other question, which is a little disjointed, but um, you do you do shop drawings? Yes. I guess, okay. So there is a creative element in that, an mm -hmm. engineering element. We're going to cantilever this huge desk and, you're going to have to look at material strengths and put an I-beam in there or whatever else you got to do. There's that creative. I've always, I'm just amazed. I'm just always amazed when you can outsource creative because that's, <laughs> unless you found a way to systemize creativity. So, and that is the biggest obstacle we encounter is that too many people leave everything up to creative. And, and so I'm, and the reason is, is because if, if it's truly creative, meaning that there is no system to it, there's no logic to it. It's just, uh, what solution did this engineer come up with? I'm never going to come up with the same thing as another person. Um, so that's generally how most mill workers will work. That's how a lot of people will work, right? Is, hey, I have a really skilled engineer. We trust him. We trust that what he comes up with, where he's going to work through and make it go through the shop. He's going to go talk to the lead fabricator and they're going to agree on a method, right? That's great. The problem is when you try to scale a business, think about anything. Imagine if you thought that way about accounting and you said, well, I don't know how we're going to do our taxes this year, but I know that Tammy in accounting is creative. If you suddenly try to change accountants, she's going to be like, wow, your last person was really creative in a different way than I would, right? Um, and that doesn't Cre necessarily creative, work. Creative bookkeeping is not a not a good thing. Yeah, but and the same thing with fabrication, right? If you were like, oh, right. man, this cabinet assembler was really creative with how he decided where those dowels should go. Um, and it's hard for people to find the logic and so that also translates to it's very difficult for you to hire and train people and teach them because what you're saying is the only way you can really be good at this is if you've done it for 40 years and you've learned, had the experience that I've had, that which is what informs my creative. Um, all of that to say that we often encounter that with clients where they're like, hey, we've got this really custom thing that needs to be figured out. And so the problem comes is if we're creative in a vacuum and then we present what we came up with to the client and it's not what they would have wanted to do. So the important part is that we work with our clients and understand, hey, who are the creatives decision makers in your business? And we want to make sure that we pull them in to inform us and discuss, hey, here's some options that we creatively come up with. But you need to, we need to know from you as a client, hey, are you going to build this in a way that is mostly CNC machine? Or do you have guys on the bench that like to do certain operations? 
Um, are you installing it yourself? Are you subcontracting that out? What type of machinery do you have? Do you have V-grooving abilities? Do you, like, There's a lot of factors that we just have to ask the right questions and talk to the right people in our client's organization to then get them the result they need. And a lot of times we're co like, that's the coaching of our clients is really the differentiator for us because our competition, a lot of the, you can go get outsourced drafting and the way it's generally going to work is you send them the architecture documents and the scope. And then a few weeks later, you get CAD files back and they may or may not be what you want or need. And what we're trying to do is actually work with you as a partner and say, hey, look, we're trying to be the foundation that your entire organization, because these shop drawings are what the entire organization uses from there going forward. Nobody looks at the scope anymore. Nobody looks at the architectural drawings. The shop drawings we produce get updated with field dimensions later that says, okay, this is now how long that wall is. They get updated with revisions from the architect. They get updated with accurate materials. And then engineering releases those to production as here's what you're actually going to make. Um, and so we want to make sure that they're not restarting. And you, you, you mentioned, uh, I think this is a good time to segue into, you asked before we started recording the difference between drafting and engineering. And so those are terms that are generic outside of millwork, but within millwork, there's many different terms for them, but generally what that means, drafting is everything related to CAD of shop drawings from when a job is awarded to the mill worker to um, approval from the client of those drawings is the way you know, it generally is. So meaning uh, we're producing drawings of what we're going to make that tell you what it's going to look like, the materials and stuff. But within the millwork organization, a lot of times that goes to a separate team that are the engineers that are the ones who actually do the figuring out of making cut lists, cut bills, CNC programs of actually how the shop is going to manufacture that. And unfortunately, a lot of the times those drafters don't have the same experience and knowledge or process standards that the engineers do. So they might and I'll see this for years and years and years. They'll draw things that engineers say, we don't actually build it that way. So after they get the drafting done, the engineer will say, yep, that's wrong. We're going to change it and use this material. We're going to change it and fabricate it this way. And so those internal structures that are just inherent to our client that we don't have control over do affect our success um, working with them. No, I thank you for that. I mean, it it's, uh, sounds to me like it's very much building relationship and uh, and learning each other over time. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I've found yeah. and what we've tried to differentiate is, you know, leveraging my experience and being here to be able to communicate and speak our client's language. You know, I was in their position. I was the engineering manager basically battling my owner saying, no, we don't want to outsource this because we're going to get bad quality. And so now I'm speaking on the other side of that, like, hey, here's why you should work with us. And I understand your your struggles and we can help work through that. You know, in a prior conversation, you and I talked about a couple of ways to work from, with you. And one is to hire a dedicated uh, remote employee who mm -hmm. part of your company. The other is uh, uh, task-based or project-based. Yep. And do you, if you're project-based, uh, can you speak a little bit about the two? I can... I mean, I have a number of millwork clients and I think this sounds like a good idea, but I've never cut a board in my life. And so the weight, you know, but on a project base, can you accumulate that experience so that you understand what they want? I mean, is that a case of interview and understand? Yeah. So generally um, we work two main ways, as you mentioned, what we call project rate or long-term or full-time. And so project rate is what people in this industry are mostly used to. Like, hey, you can go outsource drawings. And it's similar to a lot of other things where, hey, here's the scope I need. Give me a price and a schedule. And so that is our most common way we start with clients is they're saying, hey, we don't know if this is going to work, but we have a project that we're willing to try you guys out on. Um, we have time. And so that's usually how we start is we will actually take and give them a free quote, free estimate. Um, and we will just like they estimate, we will estimate scope items, 
but we do it in by asking questions, you know, one, how do you guys do your shop drawings? What software do you use? How do you organize your drawings? Meaning, you know, are you going to organize scope by rooms or do you like to put like items together? It's different manufacturers organize their drawings differently, but that informs how we're going to price the job and how we're going to do the work for you. Um, but once we engage that way, we have clients that'll just stay that way. You know, we're there as their, their overflow capacity. And generally, we will aim to keep our same internal people always with that client. So there's consistency. We uh, document internally and kind of create drafting standards for that client. Most companies don't have documented standards. Um, and that's what I, I've done at every company as an engineer manager is created, actually documented. Here's our drafting standard. Here's the block we use for labels. Here's how we lay things out on a page. Like, um, you know, a lot of experienced engineers were like, I don't need you to tell me how to do that. But for us to be consistent, it matters. And so we will document that internally and kind of create a client profile of that customer so that no matter if it's a month or six months in between the last job and this one, we have that as a reference to say, this is how this client operates and what they expect. Um, so that's generally how we'll start with clients. And then what happens is a lot of times it'll work great and they'll say, hey, we actually have a lot of work or we consistently are, this is a bottleneck for us. So the first way we try to augment is, as I mentioned before, there's a difference between drafting and engineering, but a lot of times the people who do those tasks are the same people in a small company. And so their bottleneck comes that they're trying to keep the shop busy, which means requires engineering, but they're also trying to keep the client happy, which means producing shop drawings. And so if an engineer is working on submittals, they're not feeding the shop. And so that becomes the first struggle a shop is trying to figure out. You know, it's like if you have an assembly line and you're constantly pulling your saw operator to do another task, every time he stops, you're clogging up that assembly line. And so what we say is, hey, let your internal people just do engineering and let us do all your submittals to get through this bottleneck period. And so we don't have to know everything about getting exact. You have a, a layer, a filter internally that even if what we submit, something maybe isn't exactly, you have time and schedule and you have that internal person with more institutional knowledge in your organization that can filter what we've done also provide us feedback. So say we draw a job two months later, they're engineering it and they say, hey, actually, we would have rather you use this detail. Great. Give us that feedback. We'll document it. We'll use that for the next time. And so um, a lot of times then what happens is we'll graduate to our full-time engagement where we'll say, they'll say, hey, we want to keep this going and we just need constant capacity. Can you give us one or two drafters? And they pay a fixed rate per month to just have those people stay full-time available for them. So what that does is, again, they're, they're, it's a controlled cost with low commitment. You're not hiring an employee that you have you know, all of the overhead and burden costs related to that. Uh, but two, you have them dedicated, meaning like I don't have to. A lot of times when you're dealing with an outsourced partner on anything, you're having to plan very far ahead. OK, I know that I'm going to have to get this project to them. I'm going to have to plan time to get it back from them, put it through our internal systems, whatever that is. Um, having a dedicated resource, now you're able to say, okay, I know what I'm going to have you do tomorrow, but I don't know the next day, but I can determine that between now and then, and I can change what they're working on as needed, just like an internal resource. And that gives them the flexibility to know, okay, I can go sell this job knowing what capacity I have available, um, as opposed to trying to sell it on a gamble and then find out if I can go get see. Love it. Uh, a quick, another quick question specific to, I'm thinking of people, but um, shop, if I'm using the words right, shop drawings that you're going to send back to the client and then uh, the submittals mm -hmm. and then the actual engineered drawings that you're going to build, mm -hmm. do you do them on the same software? Because I know some people do not. Some people do not. So a lot of people may use cabinet vision for the engineering and they might do the shop drawings in AutoCAD. Um, you know, that is one of our biggest things. So we mostly work with microvome clients um, and microvome overlays in AutoCAD. And so part of our value add is that if you use microvome, we're going to draft in microvome in your library so that 
what we're doing, providing for you, isn't just submittal drawings. It is going to be your found, your fabrication drawings as well in, in your engineering drawings. And so a lot of times, you know, we encounter a client, we start working with them, and they're at that stage of like, hey, we do submittal drawings over here in this software and then engineering over here. And we, our goal is to help, you know, align those things and either get them to where they're both the same or at least we can make the transition between the two more really seamless. Easy. Yeah. So uh, could you describe a day in the life of somebody who's working with one of your uh, folks down there? I mean, are they talking every day? Probably not, but. Um, yeah, so that is our, honestly, one of our goals is to communicate as often as possible and daily with our clients. So if we're actively working on a project, we assign a team lead that is the lead point of conduct. They're actually working on your job. They're responsible if we, if we have multiple drafters on that job to scale capacity that everything goes through that team lead. Um, and so if there's questions, usually it starts with the kickoff. Hey, you awarded us a job or we're you know getting going to start this. We tell you, hey, we can start this date. We will schedule a kickoff meeting with that client. And so usually that's it might be combined with their internal kickoff. A lot of these companies will say, hey, we're awarding this job. We're going to schedule an internal kickoff. And that's where you go over the scope. We discuss schedule, all that type of stuff. But we will have our team lead come prepared. They've already reviewed all the stuff and they have a list of questions. A lot of the stuff is questions like we talked about. So we understand, hey, I see this really custom fixture. Um, here's how we might detail it, but we need to know from you these things to make sure that we detail it correctly. So we try to come prepared with as many questions as possible. And then daily, if there's updates, um, we'll submit RFIs to the client in a way that they can ask the client if needed or just respond with answers. Um, we use a software called Bluebeam, so we're constantly um, feeding drawings for review and so that if your internal PM or engineering manager who's working with us doesn't get to, you know, the final day before everything's due, they have 100 pages to review all at once. And so we're trying to daily feed them details and also so that maybe there's a repeated detail. We want to review the first one and get it right before we copy it a bunch of times. Um, so it is almost daily communication, um, learning from the client, you know, hey, how can we help you manage us better and how can we... Um, but also get on a cycle that is, you know, uh, tolerable <laughs> to be successful on this project and try to avoid surprises and stuff. Well, I've got more of a question that's almost even, I mean, we can kind of wrap up on this. I know we're almost running out of time here, but as we think about your business model and your internal structure, I want to kind of open up the conversation to the whole industry of construction, not just millwork and kind of the, the trends and the direction you think things are going. Um, you know, you've, you've talked about how you were really young for your generation, uh, or for your industry, mm -hmm. and there's a new generation coming in. Um, but you've also talked about global talent and how that makes up a large part of your company. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the direction of construction in general and what global talent, uh, what role global talent will play in the construction industry as a whole going forward. You mentioned that, you know, remote employees are remote employees. It doesn't matter if they're in Atlanta or Oklahoma or New York or Bolivia or uh, somewhere else in the world. Where do you see things going in, in for the general construction company out there? And how do you think they're going to utilize global talent going forward? Um, yeah, so global talent is in itself a massive industry. And it's already for many years been being leveraged in software development. Um, and, and really in, in tech support and phone support and lots of lots of industries have been leveraging it for many, many years. Um, but in the construction industry, we tend to be, you know, a decade behind all the other industries on adopting uh, new innovations and things like that, especially when it comes to technology. And I think a lot of it stems from, especially here in the U.S., you know, this kind of <clears throat> apprehension about uh, offshoring work in general, you know, losing jobs and stuff like that. Um, and what I would say is that I think that the mentality of that is, has shifted, is shifting, but needs to shift in our industry more. And so like from what we do, right, we have people in Bolivia that are doing shop drawings for U.S. manufacturers. And so there are some people that would say, hey, you're taking jobs that could be going to U.S. engineers, for example. 
But at the same time, <clears throat> there is a huge shortage of that specific talent in the U.S. Like there are just not enough people, young people entering this industry, specifically in these skilled um, types of tasks like engineering and drafting. And so my fear and what, you know, my, a lot of the motivation for us is that I don't want to see U.S. manufacturing go away, U.S. construction go away, right? And so what I what we're doing is hoping to success, support millwork manufacturers continuing to be successful from a profitability standpoint, from a cost standpoint, from a, you know, being able to keep doing what they do, right? And so I think if you look at uh, more holistically, what is it that we do in the construction industry? And then within that, what are the high value tasks, functions that are important that somebody locally in your office, uh, somebody on your job site does, right? There's things that just can't be not done there. Uh, outside of that, though, what functions can be supported elsewhere and actually maybe in a better way? Like there are people that have the skills and talents that you need and are more cost effective um, and actually you know, more trained in these things. And so I, that, I think if you kind of open your mind and start to think about it that way, there's creative ways to do this. I mean, virtual assistants is a thing that's been around for a long time. Um, and so it's how can you as a business owner in this industry creatively problem solve, like looking at all the stuff that your people do and are there functions that you're, you just consistently struggle to hire people to fill and then thinking about those things. Okay. If I didn't struggle to fill this role and instead I had an abundance of talent for this role, what would that mean for my business as a whole? Would I be able to grow revenue? Would I be able to take on more jobs, which in turn means hire more people just in other roles? So I think that is a big thing that I think t still it's a mental mentality shift. Um, and, and there's always, you know, certain politics and things here in the U.S. That, that drive that. But I think if people really take a step back and just look at the big picture, um, they we can do a lot with it that, you know, that I'm not the only one thinking of this. And I think there's things I haven't thought of before. Uh, outside of that, I think we do have a skills gap in, in it's generational that this industry, you know, hasn't figured out how to get young people in and create a career path for them. Like I made a conscious decision to go like make a career out of this stupidly, stubbornly maybe, but it was, Hey, I see a path here. I don't know. Like I remember early on thinking like, Hey, I've got friends that went in different directions and they've got benefits. They've got all these things that I don't think are existent, but I stuck with it. And eventually, you know, I've been better for it and I've gotten all those things that I didn't think I could in this industry. So I think it's, if you're a business owner or you're a leader and you're saying, Hey, nobody wants to work. Nobody, I can't hire people. Um, one consciously creating a path so that it's not just stopping at that entry level role you're trying to fill today. You need a pipeline and you need to give those people a path to something more. Like they have to be able to imagine where am I going to be when I'm 40, 50, 60? Am I going to be able to fund retirement? And am I going to enjoy my job for 30, 40 years? And, and beyond that, then as a business, like what could me approaching these types of problems differently than I've done so far open up for my business? If I outsource this thing, you know, because because we are a creative industry, because we are a craftsman driven industry, there's a lot of ego and a lot of like, oh, well, I can never outsource that because they're not going to do it as good as me. And if you go to any other industry, especially manufacturing, it's it's manufacturing, it's process, it's system, it's checklist, it's quality control, and everything is regimented and and there, there nothing is sacred. And so I think there's got to be a balance of that. But you've got to you have to define for you guys what is sacred and the stuff that's not. Like truly find the most cost efficient, best solution for just that task. Man, so good, so true. I think. Uh... That mentality needs to be embraced across the industry. And there's so many ways to use global talent that people are just leaving out on the table in the construction industry. So I appreciate your thoughts. And I think that'll continue to be a hot topic going forward for our industry. Um, man, Jacob, this has been so much fun. Yeah. I really yeah. appreciate you joining us for the cash flow contractor and 
um, so much to take away from what you're doing inside the millwork industry. And um, yeah, I think we've already mentioned your podcast, uh, Verify in Field. Sorry, I got the meaning behind that wrong, yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure that it's great for your industry as well uh, and that people recognize that immediately. Uh, we've also mentioned Duckworks several times. Uh, your website's DuckworksMWForMillwork.com. Yep. Uh, we'll have that in the show notes. We'll have your podcast in the show notes as well. Uh, where else can people connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. DuckworksMW, everything's there on our website. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jacob Edmond. Um, I'm, I'm very active on there. We have you know, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions or you guys are, you know, you're a millwork owner, you're struggling with this and you're saying, hey, I know I have this problem. I'm not sure about outsourcing. Shoot me a message. I'd love to jump on a call and just talk through it. Look into it. Don't self-deselect. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, this has been great. Absolutely. Uh, for the millwork side of it and also just your story and uh, great to meet an entrepreneur mm -hmm. who's, who's into it and maybe over the first hump a little bit yeah, uh, I hope so. and enjoying it. So yeah. Thank you guys for having me. And thank you guys for what you guys do with this, this, uh, this podcast. I think it's extremely helpful and valuable for, for our industry. Really appreciate it. I don't know how much value they're getting from <laughs> us, but it's people like you that, that, uh, that make it yeah. possible. So thanks, man. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you again another time. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Cashflow Contractor. Check out our website in the show notes or visit thecashflowcontractor.com.